Hey everybody, before we get to today's interview, I want to talk about what I'm planning to do for episode 50. I mentioned in the interview with Justin Twell last week that I think we should do something special for the 50th episode of the Backyard Banter podcast. At the end of every show, I always sign off with, uh, I hope you learned something today. I I mean that. Beyond it just being a cheesy stock uh, sign-off line, the show really is about imparting something to the listener uh, and to me, and to even to the guest too sometimes, something that we might not have known before, something that we can take uh, from the show and apply it to our goals and our dreams in life, whether it's to become a writer in the sports media industry or uh, in your career field or just your, your personal life. The, the show's goal is to for you guys to take something from this and to apply it and, and, to, and to learn from it. So for the 50th episode, I think we should find out what have you guys learned? What have I learned? What have what have the, the guests learned? What what are we what are we learning here? So, my challenge to you all is to submit a one to three minute recording of something that you have learned from one of the episodes of the Backyard Banter podcast. Go back, find something from episode one to episode forty nine that you're about to listen to, and send it send me something that you have learned. Make an audio recording on your iPhone or maybe you have more sophisticated recording equipment, doesn't matter. But email it to me at mharmon2570 at gmail.com, and we'll put it together for episode 50 so that we can find out what we have learned from the two seasons of the Backyard Banter podcast. I think it'll be fun. I think it'll make for a good 50th episode. So to recap, I want you to go back, find something from one of the episodes, 1 to 59, and tell me what you learned from it. Send a one to three minute recording to the email provided and we'll put it together for episode 50. Now, again, find the episode number and the guest and tell me what you learned from it or just from one particular section. All right, now let's get to today's show. Welcome back into another uh, to another edition of the show. Here, it's good to good to be talking to you all, and even better to be talking to uh, my guest here today. I don't know if that's right for me to say. It's even better to be talking to the guest to the listeners. That's a tough uh, relationship to balance out. But if you know anything about me, you know I do have struggles with balancing relationships. And already, I'm talking too much about myself. So let me bring my uh, my guest in here. It's Jordan Rodrigue. She is a beat writer covering the Carolina Panthers with the Charlotte Observer. Uh, Jordan, welcome into the show. How are you doing today? Thanks. I'm doing great. And I have to tell you, I um, once I saw on Twitter just now that you had shaved your beard, I expected your voice to be a lot higher, but it's actually <laughs> right, on, right on point. When I saw that, I was like, oh my. Yeah. <laughs> it told me you could see your face for the first time. I know it. The, the beard thing is, is shocking. Um, you know, to, to cross promote podcasts here, we will definitely be discussing the beard shaving in depth on the fantasy hipsters podcast as it's much more of a, <laughs> much more of a big, um, wave movement with that part of my brand than it is this part. But yeah, you know, change, change in the wind here with, with the beard, but I, I would hope that I still 
uh, sound much more like a man, though I look uh, a little more childlike. So that's that's good. Uh, but the beard will be back, everybody. Don't worry. But uh, we are back here. We are back in the backyard bantering uh, here with, with my guest, Jordan. And uh, so, Jordan, I, I guess I always start the show kind of by asking the guest, how did you get into sports like how did you fall in love with with i i assume that you like sports since you're a beat writer um yeah, i hope so <laughs> <laughs> that would be that would be weird and we might uh we might start to cover uh how to change your career here on the backyard banter <laughs> podcast but um no so kind of take us back to the beginning of your your background in in sports in general so it's funny whenever um i usually get asked this question it's in like a um, usually in like a maybe a bar setting or in a like social gathering setting, and it'll it'll usually come with like a, a head tilt. Oh, how did how did you, you must really like sports? How did you get into sports? Now I know that's not the context here, but it's just it's so funny. You you hear so much different vocal shifts whenever um, you I tell someone what I do for a living or something like that, or someone is curious about how how I got into it. So good job. You did it right, Matt. But uh, oh, I got to so, do something right. So um, I always make the joke that my dad raised three daughters and I'm left-handed. So in baseball, you always build, you always give the big money to the left-handed pitchers. And so my dad always kind of made this joke that I was the one that he was going to build the, the Rodrigue franchise around because um, I was left-handed and that's where all the big money always goes. Now it's funny that I chose to do journalism as a career because <laughs> we all know that's not really where the big money is, but yeah, I was Confirmed. always, um, I always was trying to get on the field with and play soccer and play football with the boys at recess. And that was at an age where we were all kind of like built the same. So it was okay to be doing that because you know, they weren't any more athletic than I was, you know, boys and girls can usually all run at the same pace and catch and throw things at the same level at once they're in, you know, once they're in like seventh and eighth grade, that changed a little bit. And then I started realizing, you know, there are definite sections um, in which girls and boys are in, are in different aspects of sport. Um, and I really was into writing from a young age and my English teacher actually shout out to Miss Viator Dobson High School. And she told me after I wrote a an analysis piece on a specific section of um, Shakespeare's Hamlet, kind of in a different, I went in a completely different direction than than kind of the assignment called for, mostly because I was bored. And then she told me that she really liked it and that writing is something that people actually do to feed themselves and they do it for careers and for a living. And so I started reading all of the, um, I, I, the first place I thought of when I, you know, thought of people who write for a living is my local newspaper. I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. So the Arizona Republic was the newspaper that I picked up. Um, and I read Kent Summers and Paolo Boyvin and Dan Bickley. And those were like the, the big three, and they still are basically the big three at the Arizona Republic. And they're the football, college football and pro football writers. They do a little basketball and I just, I absolutely loved it. They got to be so diverse in their style and, you know, obviously as a young girl seeing Paula, she just was kicking so much butt across, you know, the front page of the newspaper and really amazing nuanced perspectives. And it was some of the strongest writing that I still to this day have ever seen. And I thought, okay, maybe I can go to school and do this for a living. So um, I went to the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State and 
it's a great school, but they try to focus a lot of emphasis on the broadcast side of things. So um, I was definitely pushed toward toward broadcast. Um, as, as a female who knew sports, I was definitely kind of questioned as to why, why would I want to be a writer and why not be on TV and why not kind of do that sort of thing. But I, I really was attracted to the idea of, of being a beat writer and being someone who's kind of has your finger on the pulse of a very specific team and a moment in history um, in which that team is participating and kind of building stories from the ground up um, and and having that source base and things like that. So I was very attracted to that when I was younger. And um, I worked all over the place. I covered the WNBA in Seattle. Um, I worked in LA for a production company for a little while when I was still in college. Um, then I went to, back to Phoenix and I covered the Cardinals and college football and basketball, um, U of A basketball, obviously the big story right now and has been. And um, then I took a job covering Penn State football in State College, Pennsylvania. And I took it kind of on a whim, knowing that it was my first big opportunity to cover a beat that was huge. I mean, Penn State football was like this huge story and obviously the scandal and James Franklin coming in after Bill O'Brien and they wanted to bring an outsider in. And I was an outsider um, in terms of growing up on the West Coast and never really caring or knowing much about Penn State. And then that was one of the wildest rides ever because I, I literally threw you know, a quarter of what I owned and my dog into my car and I drove across the country from Arizona to Pennsylvania and I kind of just figured it out along the way. And I didn't know anybody and I was running my own beat at this amazing little paper. Um, the Center Daily Times has some great people there. My boss gave me a ton of creative autonomy, which really um, kind of inspi inspired me to take the job in the first place. And I, you know, built built a, a modern style beat, which um, that, that newspaper really desperately kind of needed because covering the Joe Paterno era, they didn't have to cover things like recruiting or um, they weren't really digitally minded in terms of the, the actual beat because they never had to be. Joe Paterno wasn't on Twitter. Um, his, his, he, you know, his, his whole philosophy was old school football and he kind of ran the program as such. So when, you know, all this change happened very, very instantly to that program and they had to kind of pull, first of all, pull the program off for the brink and then also move it into the 21st century, they also really wanted somebody who was kind of digitally minded and, and thought first about web and, and social and, and um, sticking to those journalistic pillars, but also, you know, thinking about print kind of last and thinking about print as, as something that was in correlation to what the digital product was being updated um, on a 24-7 news cycle. So it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun. Um, the same company owns that paper that owns the Charlotte Observer. And um, I guess I sort of joked that I got drafted. Um, <laughs> I covered Penn State for almost two years. And um, I, I kind of make the joke that I, I got drafted to the NFL after the awesome, awesome Jonathan Jones left for Sports Illustrated. And now I'm on the Panthers beat with Joe Person. And it's been the wildest <laughs> experience of my life. And so much fun and Joe has been awesome to learn from and I have started talking way too long. So go ahead, Matt. <laughs> Why don't you jump in here? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you and I uh, have sort of similar backgrounds there that 
<clears throat> coming from well, going the opposite direction really i came from the east coast and you know living in virginia my entire life to take this job with nfl network in los angeles and you kind of did the inverse there going from um from from the west coast to uh to the east coast there what just real quick like what is that transition uh what is that transition like from someone else that has gone through it well it was interesting it's a different it's a different type of football out here than it was. I mean, I grew up watching Pete Carroll and USC and, and not really paying much attention to Joe Paterno and Penn State, you know. So and we, we paid attention to Ohio State because, you know, there's snowbirds in Arizona. That was kind of our thing was ASU was kind of always on the cusp of being OK. And, you know, U of A was always not good. <laughs> and, um, you know, the rest of these Pac-12, Pac-10 at the time, air heavy offenses were exciting to watch, but they never really made that big of an impact um, in terms of the national conversation. So once I got to Penn State, then I kind of realized big picture college football, the way that that the landscape was turning and was able to really cover a lot more of, of big picture topics in college football, because Penn State was kind of experiencing everything all at once. They were going through legal issues and going through, um, you know, coaching changes and they had to basically start from scratch on the recruiting the recruiting grounds and some of their pipelines obviously had been just burned to the ground so they had to recreate recruiting pipelines and you know modernize the program and social media so it was all these things that was interesting that I'd seen kind of come natural in terms of west coast mentality of of we're very forward thinking and very um high profile social media and very our our footprint is huge and you know, we want our brand to be out there. And, and Penn State kind of always lived off being Penn State, if that makes sense. So that was a, that was definitely a big culture adjustment. And then the cold. I couldn't I couldn't deal with the cold. Obviously, I didn't last very long in the cold. So, um, yeah, I have a I have a German Shepherd mix. And I think his biological clock freaked out because he grew like half a winter coat. Um, the first year we were in Pennsylvania, he's a desert dog. So he grew half a winter coat the first year we were in Pennsylvania. Then he overcompensated and grew an incredibly thick winter coat by the time we were on our way down, down to Charlotte, which ended up getting just blown out all over my all over my floor in my house. So it's been an it's been a I think more of an interesting ride for him in terms of adjustment than it has for me. Well, you're on a dog friendly podcast here, and we could we could probably talk dogs uh, all day and the <laughs> the transition of life. I will say my dog. Charlie has embraced LA life. Um, he was bo- he was born for this city. That's that's for sure. Any like any dog that is uh, I'm and I'm looking at him right now. He I, he knows it's true. Any dog that's as beautiful as he is should definitely be uh, you know here shining among the stars. And me, I'm just riding his coattails. Um, but it's it's fascinating that you mentioned kind of jumping into the Penn State job because I mean at that time like you like you've alluded to really chaotic. Um, wild time in the uh in, in the in the program's history um especially for like a new beat writer did you ever kind of feel like you almost were not only covering uh football but also kind of covering like just this major like kind of social or life event too and is that a difficult challenge being that it was like your first real big opportunity oh yeah absolutely because there's a, a lot of pressure I felt because I, I try to hold myself to really high standards. And so there was a lot of pressure in, in kind of proving that, 
I, as at the time I was 22, just first of all, deserve to be on that beat where there's so many incredible tenured riders. I mean, it's, it's still to this day, the largest traveling beat college or NFL in the country. There's an, an insane amount of riders that cover the team and they're all really just wonderful people. And I wanted to prove that I belonged there with them, right, right with them. And I, and I didn't want it to look like I had ever missed a step, which is a lot of pressure to put on yourself, I think. But when it, you couple, you couple it with, um, moving across the country, first of all, and, and not really knowing where you're going to live or even having really that a place to live the first couple of days that I was out there. And then, you know, making sure that I'm immediately well-versed and knowledgeable in a team that I had very little experience with and I'd barely even ever discussed when I was growing up as a kid. Um, and, and then covering, you know, thousands of court documents and legal jargon and, and covering lawsuits, because as, as you know, there's still several ongoing lawsuits surrounding the university and there, and there was all of these unsealing of documents when I was there and, and just crazy turnover. And then you cover money because they had to pay those fines and they also are trying to to redo their stadium and and kind of upgrade all their facilities and so you're covering money and you're covering trustees and you're covering recruiting the way that most people don't have to cover recruiting because they weren't obviously they you know they had sanctions on their recruiting process and and then Bill O'Brien recruited a very specific way and in terms of of kind of appealing to a little bit more flash playmakers on the offensive side of the ball to make sure that you know the program still looked good and then then there was the James Franklin way where he has to come in and kind of build everything up again from scratch and and has no offensive lineman pipelines left over and has no um, none of these things that long-term programs are built on. And then obviously he caught a ton of heat for not having the immediate answer. We're seeing his, his efforts and some of his decisions kind of pay off now in terms of his long-term plan and Penn state's good again and all that. That's great. But it was, it was crazy there for a minute because, you know, and, and, you know, I'll, I'll be the first one to say, I, I am one of the people that, you know, was a little skeptical of him coming in and, Definitely not as a person. I think he's definitely the right personality to be leading that program. He's kind of a type A CEO mentality. But at the same time, I mean, you can't not be skeptical of something of a program that felt to many like it was going to just kind of disappear from the face of the earth for a while there. So, yeah, it was a really interesting social and and analytical and kind of um big picture and little picture at the same time landscape to be covering from the courtroom and the football field and the recruiting and satellite camps and all this craziness. And it was probably the most insane time of my life. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. This is kind of a little off topic, but since you, since you mentioned him, what what is, what's Bill O'Brien like? I have a tough time getting a, getting a read on him, like as a, as a coach or I mean he seems like a good he seems like a good guy just I don't know I don't know a damn thing about him other than like what you read it what you see in press conferences what you read and of course on hard knocks like I know that it's like the scene with his son um who had the, the has the major disability and or and, and all that like that was an incredibly touching scene you know I used to work with with that population too so it was really uh intense and and hard to like get that out of your mind and I like a lot of what he does but then at the same time like the whole those two kids can play with the quarterback position and some of the other things like what 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 is Bill O'Brien like as a coach? What's your opinion on him? 
So I got there right after Bill left, but I definitely covered the fallout of him leaving. And what I mean by that is he recruited certain positions heavily and then kind of left others um, by the wayside, which he had which he had to do because he had such strict sanctions imposed on his own recruiting process. So this, that's definitely not a knock on him. But um, he definitely left a lot of work <laughs> for for James Franklin, which I think it's probably pretty impossible not to do in that situation. But when it came to um, the stories I heard about him, I always heard he was he was honest, even when he was angry um, at at the media. He was honest, and James James Franklin was the same was the exact same way as. Um, he was actually always very, very honest with, with media and conversations, especially in private conversations. Um, but in terms of, in terms of Bill as a person, I know that the community really loved him because to them, he basically came in as a guy who looked like he had a death wish. I mean, nobody wants that program. Nobody wants that scandal. Nobody wants that fallout. And especially the community of people that are just die hard will not listen to any other argument other than Joe Paterno is the best. I mean, he he definitely he definitely had his work cut out for him and he got some heat for some comments he made about that specific community and um but then at the same time, you know, he had this entire house that he bought in State College redone to accommodate his disabled son and and was always he and his wife were always in the community, you know, with his son and and with his kids and really trying to make a difference and make an impact regardless of how little or long he thought he was going to be there. He really tried to do the best with what he had. Um, and, and I finally got a chance to meet him actually at the combine. I walked in with Joe to a restaurant and, um, Joe knows Bill from way back. And so Joe was kind of like eyeing our, our table and we walked right by him. And of course I'm doing the double take, like, Oh my God, that's Bill O'Brien. I heard so many stories about him. I finally might have the chance to meet him. And he's and and then he sits there and he yells Joe's name, trying to get Joe's attention. And I'm like, this is not real life right now. And and so we we go back and he just was really gracious and kind. And I told him I had been wanting to meet him for a while because I covered the James Franklin era at Penn State, um, or at least the beginning of it. And and I had heard such great stories about him and and some some really interesting um, had some interesting thoughts about his whole process. And he just was really gracious, totally let me interrupt his dinner. So I have nothing but good things to say about the guy. Oh, that's great. Cause like I said, he seems like somebody I want to root for. So, uh, it's good. Good. Thanks for answering that completely. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for answering that completely self-serving <laughs> question here. On, well, then again, it is my show. I do get that's to do what I'm here for, right? That's yeah, good. I guess so. Um, but, but back to you a little bit, you know, you mentioned, uh, in your original story of kind of coming up in uh in sports and media and everything like you back in school it was kind of a broadcast heavy thing but you mentioned you were a little bit hesitant or resistant to that being your path you much more were inclined to to being a writer what about being kind of uh, a broadcaster was not appealing to you despite the fact that it seems like you indicated there was some push for you to go in that direction yeah, well, I have a I have a real answer and I have a funny answer that I I on, I usually only joke about with with my sisters. But um, my this real this is the venue for that. This is the yeah, venue for well, the my, both. My funny answer that my sisters my sisters are are um, to put it politely, we give each other a hard time a lot. And there, I I have a twin sister and an older sister, and we have this really great dynamic where we just like talk a bunch of trash to each other all the time. So my, my twin sister 
who, of course, as a twin, will be quick to spot out like any differences in facial structure or features that you have with that person. And because every little thing counts when you're a twin, like I'm two inches taller than her and I will defend that to my grave because it matters. So, <laughs> so she always jokes that I didn't go into broadcast because she thinks my eyebrows are uneven. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so she always, she always, I'm like, really? That, that would, uh, that would not do it, Maddie, but thank you. But, um, she always jokes about that. Um, and so then the, other, but the real reason was I just felt like, I just felt like the greatest impact I've ever had as a human being was when I've read something that matters to me or read something that's that's important to me or or someone has told a story and I've been able to absorb it with my with my eyes and my brain in a you know in a text that's sitting in front of me that I could either hold in my hand or kind of look at on the screen and feel like I'm completely immersed in it and I think that that was something that was really important to me, the concept of telling a story and be, being able to create something from its inception and kind of this little tiny thought in your brain to building something with, with you know, cadence and prose and something that sometimes we don't get to do a lot as beat writers, but when we get a chance to write these feature stories and, and do these things that, you know, really matter to somebody. And I always thought that my greatest achievement if I were ever to become a beat writer would to be to write something that someone's mom would save because my mom always used to save all my little papers that got you know A's or A pluses and um, there were a lot of them no I'm just kidding but um, (laughs) she always used to save all of my papers and she said I wrote like a little book when I was a kid it was just so stupid it was about a talking dog of all things and um and she saved it and she she always saved these things that that were really important to her and so i thought okay well i know other moms do that and i know that they you know at this level some of these kids are are doing things that their family may have never even dreamed or imagined was possible for their family so being able to tell these stories and and seeing that image in my head of of maybe it mattering enough to somebody to save it and to have a, a physical piece of paper or a, you know, a story bookmarked or, or something like that, because they go to it when they're feeling a certain type of way and, and they pull it up and they read it. And I don't know, that just really, that just really appealed to me. And I, I think that sometimes that get, gets that connection with people gets lost um, when you're, you know, kind of talking at them behind a camera or, or trying to get sound bites or something like that. And, and obviously no disrespect intended, but it's just not, Um, it's just not, I don't think my type of, of connection that I'd want to make that I'd want to make with somebody. And so many people starting out in broadcast have to, you know, kind of adhere to that, that soundbite status quo. And I just felt like if I can try and, and make connections with people and and the subjects that I'm telling stories about, um, and, and, and talk about something that matters to them, that's really all I want to do with, with my job and, and why I feel truly like I'm supposed to be doing this and, and be in this profession. Uh, it's, it's a great answer. I, I agree with a lot of uh, what you just said. I mean, I've, I've done a little bit of both I agree with all of it. <laughs> well, I, I, I agree with, I agree with this. Not, maybe not the funny answer that that's a, that's, I don't know. We're, we're doing this audio, so I can't speak to speak to your eyebrows or whatever. Not that I would know. I, I, can't I, either. I have no idea what she's talking about. Honestly, it's your, so funny. your siblings, especially, I feel like 
come at you with stuff that you're just like, where the hell did you get that? But then again, I mean, I guess they're supposed to know you. But um, yeah, my sisters have a lot of critical thoughts about me, and I some some are fair, some are not. But <laughs> I, I, I've I've done a little bit in my career, a little bit of TV, but mostly writing. And uh, by far, I much prefer to be a be a writer. That's where I think I was. Yeah, like you said, like born. To, I was born to be a writer. Um, and I do the TV thing too a little bit because, you know, it's good for your career or whatever. But I mean, at the same time, writing is so, so much more of a personal, uh, you get to just put more of yourself into it than, than you do on like a two minute hit on, on NFL network or whatever. But you know, that's just my opinion. So good answer. Good answer. You, you, you passed, you passed the test there on, uh, on that question. One, Thanks, Matt. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no problem. Uh, one thing that you, you kind of mentioned was having that voice um and this is i was going to save this for later in the show but since you kind of you mentioned it uh, it's a good time to to kind of bring it in now like i feel like one of the things about my job that's so great just being like a an analyst is i get to kind of kind of also have like a voice and have uh have you know a bit of a, a hashtag brand or whatever i guess and like be able to goof around a little bit or just again like inject my own sort of personality in into my writing because I'm just like giving opinions and when I decided that I wanted to be a, an NFL writer I thought about like being an actual reporter and and that idea never appealed to me almost because I thought I wouldn't be able to include my voice do you feel like you get to do that on a on a general basis am I completely dead wrong on what I'm saying here uh so what's what's your opinion on that do you think you get to kind of inject your voice into your reporting a little bit yeah I definitely think so I think you're you're pretty spot on with with all of that actually I think that Twitter um especially Twitter helps a lot in when it comes to building a connection with the reader base and and Twitter has many many flaws as we know but for that, I am really thankful that it exists, is that it helps kind of build a connection with a reader base. Because if you if you kind of just throw up articles out there and they're kind of, you know, old school, very, um, I guess, cut and dry articles um, that you would no- see in, in newspapers, you know, in the 90s, I think that that loses a lot of the personality that you often only saw columnists have when you were, when I was growing up and, and reading them, you only saw, um, you only saw these columnists with have these, this real connection to their reader base because they're able to share their personalities in the paper. Whereas beat, beat writers weren't really able to do that. But now that, now that Twitter exists and is kind of this huge thing, it, it really helps with building that personality. And I think that goes a long way, especially when I, am somebody that tries to always be incredibly transparent. I think it's important in my job, but also in my life, because oftentimes the two are are one and the same in this industry. As you know, you, I mean, you can't separate the two sometimes. So I think it's really important to have, have that, have that voice. And it's, it's kind of cool too, that say what you will about kind of the shift in the digital age and, and print kind of going under and, and more and more newspapers shifting toward digital ourselves included. It, it really opens up room for me to be able to write a column. And that's kind of cool because regardless of whether or not you're a beat writer or a columnist, you definitely have opinions about the team that you're spending sunrise to sunset up with every single day of the season. And the team that, you know, you're kind of, 
following their every move and they, you know, they're just there all the time. And you kind of get a really good feel for the pulse of that atmosphere. Even, you know, even someone like me, who's only been around for, you know, six months at this point. So I think it's so important to be able to share that with readers, regardless of whether you're a beat writer, an analyst or a columnist, because that not only helps communicate the, the kind of the gap between the fan and the team, where there's kind of that gray, dark room, unknown area that the sports writer is supposed to bridge by kind of explaining what's going on with the team to the fan and to the reader. And and then you can also do that in a very personable way instead of kind of a, um, you know, we are cold and we don't connect with you because we're talking at you through a newspaper or through a computer screen. Now, instead, we can be conversational almost if we're on Twitter or, or when we're writing columns and we can kind of share why these things matter or, or why they're important to us specifically or, or why nuance in some cases is great or, or things like that. And I just think that um, it's, it's just really valuable. And I am in a world where I'm young enough to where I don't know much different other than what I read when I was when I was growing up. And, and I honestly, I could tell you maybe one beat writer that I used to read when I was a kid, but I could remember every single columnist that I ever read when I was a kid. But now I could tell you, I mean, now everyone has, has a voice and has an opinion. I, I just love that. I love kind of feeling out who all these different writers are and, and how they vibe with the team and all of that thing. So long answer to your question yet. I think it's, um, I think it's so important. I think it's really valuable to have that personality show through. Well, I, I think it's, it's what separates a good beat writer from, any old beat writer in my opinion um and obviously especially doing fantasy stuff during the season like you really got to keep up on the news you got to read a lot of beat reports and everything and Mm -hmm. it's so refreshing (laughs) when you get somebody with a voice and an opinion because i mean other people might might disagree but i love getting like a holistic feel of a situation and i think good writing with a voice like you mentioning it really it brings that out much more than just the traditional uh this is what happened in practice today like i don't want to read that give me a break yeah and i love i love when i love when readers respond to it i mean it's so great and that's another thing i mean i love that on twitter when when readers will catch like a pun or like that just makes my day you know i write it i write it because i hope somebody i hope somebody catches it or i hope it it brings a smile to somebody's face or i hope it it puts it in terms that are more personable that are, are able to be communicated to somebody that might not follow the team on a day-to-day basis, but still wants things put into terms where it's like digestible, if that makes sense. And I think having a voice and a personality really does that. And I think it brings people back if they're kind of getting that something extra from you, whether you're sharing different opinions on Twitter or or in your work, it it definitely brings people back because they remember specifically that name of that, of that story and that writer that they kind of laughed at that one column that one time, or it really struck a chord with them and they come back. And I think that's, that's really big nowadays. Yeah. I I mean, say all the time on this podcast, pretty much every episode, I feel like, and it, well, it's because I really believe it is the best advice to people that want to get into the industry. Like, you have to stand out, you know, you, you got it, whether it's creating unique content or having a unique voice, you want your readers to come back to you and say, I get this from your piece that I don't get it anywhere else. Again, whether that's, you know, an analytical method like reception perception, or whether it's Jordan's voice and her writing covering the Panthers, that's what you're kind of shooting for. You know, you, you want that you want to have, like you said, you want to have that relationship with your readers. 
Um, Jordan, so you're a beat writer now. You, like you said, drafted into the NFL, covering yeah. co- covering the Carolina Panthers for the Charlotte Observer, which is a great paper that I've read uh, for, for years and years because of my what I like to call complicated relationship with the team that you cover. Um, it's the best way to it, to describe it. Um, what what is what? Ha- this is a super open ended question, so feel free to respond to it in any way possible. What has the experience been like? What is the day to day operation of of covering of covering the Panthers? Um. Okay. Well, I guess if you picture, you just get like the greatest ice cream sundae for for dessert and you're walking into your house with it and then you step on a lego i think that simultaneously is what it's like to be an nfl reporter (laughs) so that is not the answer i was expecting so i'm very (laughs) curious to hear your explanation for that it's just the greatest job ever honestly i mean every day i will tell you right now i i cannot freaking believe how fortunate i am to be doing what I do for a living. I, I wake up every day Amen. and I, sometimes I just like, I'm one of those people I'll shake my head at my dog and like have a conversation with him. I know that's super weird, but I, <laughs> again, I you're in good company here. And I'm like, can you believe that we feed ourselves by doing this? Like, can you believe that we get to live here and be here and work with the people we work with and meet the people we meet and just how much joy I take in, in doing this job. And that's the, the ice cream Sunday part. I mean, it is just so joyful to feel like you can learn something every day. You can tell stories, you can dissect situations and use critical thinking and use analysis and share your voice and communicate with people and learn and, and kind of feel things every single day. And then, and then you get like, you know, sourcing and, you know, PR and dealing with structured practice times and players talking on certain days and and everyone all the players think that you know if you're media there's kind of that growing divide between players and media and you know the learning curves and the and the curveballs that things throw at you and um you know just red eye flights back from games and and that kind of a thing and and that's kind of the lego part so but you know what? I mean, I'd take a thousand, a thousand of the Lego parts for you know half a second of the Sunday. So I, I'd say I'm, I'm in pretty good position here. Yeah, I, I, it sounds. I mean, it sounds like an, a hell of an experience. Like, I mean, I, I listen to an NPR podcast called like Embedded, and it's there where they like really go in depth on like one single news story uh, and really take it. You know, essentially in their opinion, they they go deep on it. And it's, it's a great podcast. I'd recommend anybody listen to it um, after you finish listening to this podcast. And don't, <laughs> don't leave me for that one, please. Um, but, but you're like really – you're embedded with the team on yeah. a day-to-day basis. Yeah. It's, it's kind of – I guess the, the biggest description of, of what I, – I guess a, a scenario in which kind of describes what this job is like all in one is – so we're in, we're in D.C. We're kind of traversing the traffic – um, of DC trying to get to the Washington Carolina game where we know we have to catch Josh Norman walking in because of that whole storyline. But then also that's when we weren't sure if, if Luke Keekley was going to be held out 
or we knew he had cleared the concussion protocol the day, the two days prior, but we didn't know if he was going to be held out or not for his own long-term health. We knew that we know Ron and we know that Ron has, you know, the best interests of his players at heart. So we assumed, and we knew kind of beyond a reasonable doubt that yes, he will be held out because they have invested a heck of a lot of money into this guy. They really care about him as a person. So yes, they are going to hold him out. We, believe that they are not they have a one percent chance of making the playoffs at this point yes they are going to hold this guy out but then there's always that little snippet of what if they don't because you always have to consider that when it comes to the game of football like what if this other scenario happens and so so we we obviously couldn't confirm it with luke's people because um with this situation just very tight-lipped as as you know they naturally would be the Panthers won't confirm it because they're waiting to send out the pregame injury report. Um, so you have all of the Panthers writers just kind of blowing up their these PR people's phones, trying to get them to confirm it. And they are obviously under, you know, kind of their own. They have to be under their own guidelines for when and how they release this information. So we are in traffic and I'm doing a radio spot. Um, Joe is driving our colleague, David Newton, the ESPN reporter. He's sitting up in the front seat. I'm doing a radio spot. The two in front are swearing at each other because they can't figure out where they're going. And one of their Google maps just quit on the other. And we're a half an hour late to the game and it's 20 degrees outside. And we're about to miss the injury report. And I'm wrapping up this radio spot so I can't help navigate and I'm like crouched in the corner of this rental car because they're swearing at each other and I can't let that go on the radio (laughs) and so then we finally get to the stadium and find our parking we sprint to the stadium so that we can try and catch Josh when he walks in and then catch the Panthers people as they walk in um, so that we can ask them face to face if Luke Keekley is going to play and we get there 30 seconds after they send out this mass email that Keekley is not going to play. So I, you know, I throw down my laptop and immediately try to get logged into our system, which takes nine years, obviously, and try to write this story while Joe's tweeting and trying to get video and then trying to go um, get Josh Norman. Our photographer's wondering where the hell we are. Like, it's just a mess. It's a huge mess. <laughs> and and then, you know, ultimately everything's fine. By halftime, everything is just peachy. We've been fed. We're fine. We're warm. Our phones are charged. All the news is out. So it's like in the space of an hour, you go from feeling like you're in a dream where you're falling, 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 flailing your arms wildly to all of a sudden you're super calm. And it's just the wildest experience. It's like this incredible season long peaks and valleys experience. But it's so funny because once you're, once you're, when you're in season, you're near the end of it and you're like, Oh my God, let this end, please. I can't do I can't do another red eye flight. I need this to be over. And then all of a sudden when it's done and, and free agency ends and you're kind of just like waiting for the draft and, and writing little pieces and analyses, you're like, man, I really wish that I were on the road right now. <laughs> and it's like this self, you know, you're just, it's just this like crazy, you keep sucking yourself into this vortex of craziness. And it's, it's wild. I'll tell you that. So, so much of what you said there is, is so 
perfect and great about what it is like doing football or I, probably any sport, but mostly f- football is all I can relate to full time. Um, well, for one, I, no surprise. I say this as a D.C. area native. No surprise that that your experience was so hellacious getting to the stadium and, and this crazy thing occurred uh, in the Washington, D.C. area. That That's pretty standard. Um, <laughs> but. Uh, like you mentioned that just war if you're if you're in sports media and, and you don't have like a story where you feel like you're in t- for at least two hours you were just on the brink of throwing up and or, or <laughs> <laughs> out of out of the pure insanity of what your surroundings are and I, I can only imagine it's more amplified like as a reporter actually at games but yeah th- those experiences are you know it, it's crazy it's and it's funny just how how you feel in the moment but yeah, that that reality of like in season by the end of it, you're like, geez, that's enough. Let's wrap it up. That's so true. That is so true. But that, but we love it, you know. That but we, like you mentioned, it is that ice cream sundae that we just can't uh, stop consuming. So that's a great description of uh, of what it is like for people who wouldn't know what it's like to be in the in that field. We'll walk on Legos just so we could have a half a second of the sundae. Absolutely, yeah. Give me more Legos to walk on, like you mentioned. Very fortunate to I be. I really miss walking on Legos today, man. <laughs> <laughs> when you say it like when you say it like that, it sounds even more crazy than it uh, than it really actually is. That's awesome. Um, so, Jordan, before I kind of ask asks move the conversation to something else, so one last point on on covering the Panthers, and I think I'm just so curious about this too. If you ask me about Cam, I swear to God. That <laughs> was what I was going to ask you. <laughs> number one question I get. Well, I mean, so I think the first pre- piece that I ever read from you, uh, and I thought it was a great piece, and it's why I, I followed you afterwards. Uh, so you're welcome. No, but I th- it was it was a good it was a good uh, it was a good like a breakdown. I think it was basically like Cam is who he is, and just let it be. But yeah. So what is okay? So I'm just going to ask, and you can feel free to hate me, and th- you know this will be the end of our our, our friendship here. Um, that's right. We're pod. You are on my podcast, so we're friends now. Sorry, um, but <laughs> but what is it? What's it like covering Cam Newton? What it what what the hell is that experience like? So it part of the. Re- I'm really glad you read that. Thank you for reading that because that was something I felt really strongly about. It goes back to wanting to have a voice, and that was really one of the the earliest times on this particular beat where I was like all right, look, everyone, this is who I am. This is what I care about. This is what I'm going to write about because it's important to understand who these people are on the field. Yes. So we'll do the X's and O's thing, but like, this is who they are off the field. And I think that's important. So thank you for reading that first and foremost. Of course. Second of all, um, Cam Newton is, I think, at, at his very, this is going to sound so ridiculous because of course he is, but he's, he's just a human being. And so many people, the reason I wrote that column was because so many people told me what to expect covering Cam. People who never covered Cam Newton were telling me what to expect <laughs> covering Cam Newton. People who were only present for his, you know, his 32nd hissy fit at, after the Super Bowl were telling me what to expect and people who had been there for, you know, 20 years were telling me what to expect. So there was a lot of different opinions throwing thrown out about Cam, but I'd never really heard one that was kind of like, what if we just accepted all these things at once? Mm. Because as human beings, I mean, we're a lot of different, a lot of different 
mercurial things kind of all swirling around in a skin bag. Like it's just not, it's, it just deserves, it deserves nuance. And I think that cam is so easy to approach without nuance because it just makes it easier. It just makes it easier to understand kind of him in general when you approach him in a, oh, he's either this or that kind of a thing. So he can either be, you know, he can either be this big celebrity who has thoughts and opinions on things or he is a recluse that keeps him to himself. And when he kind of strays out of those lanes, that's when people who have compartmentalized him themselves, he has not done this, but when people compartmentalize him and he strays from the the lanes that they have placed him in, that's when people get angry about Cam. And I think that it's a very interesting thing because it's a kind of a microcosmic look at our society in general and how we treat celebrities and how we treat um, people in, in the public eye and, and, and how that kind of is this, this growing trend of how people compartmentalize other people. And I think that's, first of all, not the way that we should be doing it. And second of all, I think that it's acceptable to be a lot of different things at once. And I think it's acceptable to show up in a just really strange outfit and then talk very seriously about concussions. I also think it's acceptable to show up in sweatpants and like Crocs and then not say anything and hem and haw and kind of eye roll. I think that's fine because that's just, that's not something I can control. I can't change, I can't change how he approaches every single separate instance of when he talks to the media. I can only cover it in a grand spectrum and kind of try to offer some nuance that he is going to be all of these things at once, whether you like it or not. He's going to be, you know, an extroverted guy who never offers opinions on anything. And that has to be okay because that's just who he is. And I think he's still figuring out who he is as a person because much of his life has been structured and put into place for him um, being in football the way he has. So I think that he's still kind of trying to figure it out. There's a lot um, that we don't see and a lot that um, we don't write about behind the scenes with Cam in terms of things that are, you know, just – not really something that, you know, are, are coverage worthy or, um, definitely off the record or things like that. And they're just, they're just kind of little facets of information, little nuggets of his personality where you, you understand he's just a lot of different things at once. And sometimes it's chaotic and frustrating and stressful. And sometimes it's really calm and surprising and, and peaceful and very well, well thought out and well reasoned, but you never know what you're going to get on any given day which I think is part of the appeal of covering him is like you could be sitting there for 45 minutes and he could still be getting dressed and you're, you know, 10 minutes from your deadline and like bouncing on your, the balls of your feet, waiting for him to get up to the podium. And he only says two words and you want to tear your hair out. And then another day, you know, you can have an actual honest conversation with him about um, being a father and about his, his experience when he had concussions that really no other player, um, no other current player who is of, of kind of his status and his level had really taken the time to think about or to say, or to share kind of feelings of fear and of insecurity when, when coming back from a concussion. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of a lot. I always tell people there's a lot of a lot going on with Cam. Um, and I think that that's something that's going to be really fascinating to cover moving forward. 
I love your perspective here on this, and I, that's why I wanted to ask you because I, I loved it when I when I read it in that piece. Like, we so much want. Well, for one, I think people just people care about way too many things. Like, there's some things you just we don't you don't need to have an opinion on everything for one, <laughs> especially when it comes to another person. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we want our celebrities to be this or that. We definitely want our football players to be this or that, and especially we want our quarterbacks to be this or that. But like you said, they're human beings. Cam Newton's a human beings, and human beings are not binary. Like they never have been, they never will be, and that's why I really like your your perspective here. Like, like you said, it's a lot of a lot, and I think that's a that's a good way to to leave it. But I won't I won't ask you more any more about Cam because I'm sure you get <laughs> sick of talking about it. But that's very. But it's it's a, he's just like I said. I really like. I mean, like him or not, I don't really care. I enjoy the fact that he's a part of our football experience because he's unique. And for God's sakes, we need more uniqueness uh, in in the NFL. That's for sure. Yeah, jo- so Jordan, last last few questions here. Um, you and I actually recently, you know, I, I I did something with you for a piece for the Observer, which is always really cool for me. By the way, um, like I said, I've been reading the Observer for a long time, so the fact that you asked me to participate in something with it is is really sick. Uh, so thank you again for for asking me. But it was a piece about Joe Mixon, um, and if if listeners aren't familiar with Joe Mixon, he's a um, running back prospect in this year's draft out of Oklahoma. Um, he's widely thought to be if not the most talented, definitely one of the most talented running backs in the in in the draft this year and in the last few years, really. Um, but he also has a really uh, on uh, gross and on video uh, incident with a woman where he broke her jaw and hit her in the face, um, and a few other things, like a few other incidents in in his background as well too. Um, but so if you're not familiar, that's the story with Joe Mixon. Uh, but so what you wanted to do was ask five national evaluators uh myself included which again thank you very nice to be a part of that um like how do you evaluate joe mixon and i kind of want to get you i kind of just have a little little brief discussion about that piece and about the the thought your thoughts in general on it like what was kind of the vibe that you got from the people that you asked about what they think about evaluating a player with joe mixon's um background well, first and foremost, I was really happy that people were eager to take part in it because I felt like it was a topic, and, and you kind of confirmed this when we talked later, I felt like it was a topic that was kind of weighing on some people. And I think that it's something that you have to be really conscious of and maybe even makes you feel a little weird when you're evaluating him. Like, okay, now I have to push aside my personal bias about the situation and do my job because this, like it or not this person is a part of this evaluation class and I have to do this. So I think that I really wanted to know when people are watching film and then they're watching the other, that video, I mean, how they kind of separate things because I know that scouts, um, and from talking to scouts and things like that at the combine, I know that scouts are are kind of approaching it in ways that are very much dictated by whether or not that team has, has him on their draft board. And so I didn't think that I wanted to know so much about, you know, which teams are going to give him a shot because we know someone will. But I wanted to know what that process is like for evaluators who aren't really kind of in these scouting sessions with teams, but they still watch a heck of a lot of film and read all the beat writers and, and, you know, it's their profession and your profession to 
make evaluations on these players. And I think that um, when you threw in a guy like Joe Mixon, who is so very clearly such a talented player, but also just enormously, enormously troubled in terms of his own background and, and the gruesome, gruesome events um, that he himself inside, like he, he did it. It's on video, mm. you know, and, and had to serve community service for it. Big whoop. But like, I think that, I think that it was so important to me to understand and to kind of share what others were thinking about, especially people who do this for a living. And, and I myself am not a, obviously not a talent evaluator for a living. And I know very much how I feel about the situation, but I wanted to know how others felt because I don't have to evaluate jo- Joe Mixon. You do. So <laughs> I wanted to know um, what, what people thought about it. And I got some really, some really good answers. Um, and I think the, at first from some people, I wanted to know too, if they felt weird talking to me kind of a stranger to some of them, to you and Josh Norris, I'm not a stranger, but to, to guys like Charlie Campbell I, and, and Kyle Krabs, I felt like I was kind of a stranger approaching them about it. So I felt like I wanted to also know if they felt strange about talking to this, talking about this subject with, first of all, me as a stranger. And second of all, as a woman covering the NFL, um, with its history of domestic violence issues and, and whatnot. So um, there was a lot of thoughts going through my head doing it, but um, I was really, really pleased with some of the answers I got in terms of the variance of opinion they offered, and um, and yourself included, I thought offered some really, some really nuanced and thoughtful opinions. Well, it's like you mentioned, this was something that, especially for me, I can confirm. Like it was something that I've wanted to talk about, but nobody really asks. <laughs> so uh, it was great when you did, and it's kind of like what we we're talking about with Cam Newton, completely different circumstances, but like human beings aren't binary and Joe Mixon in my opinion is not binary he is not just a talented running back or he is not just a dude that punched a woman in the face which is disgusting and abhorrent like you have to somehow as an analyst I think marry those two together like to me it's disingenuous to try to to try to separate them and like I don't know there's a lot of like as a person for me that believes in second chances and redemption and finds those to be like incredibly valuable pieces of our of our what should be our human existence but also very much like stands up for for women's rights and and you know is just completely obviously a, disgusted by violence against women like it's a hard thing to balance and it's even harder when it's like I love watching good football and Joe Mixon provides pr- plenty of good football and so, you know same with guys like Tyree Kill and and it's a tough honestly it's as a as a fan of the game first and foremost if you can like if you're not just going to completely turn your brain off to that which i never want to turn my brain off like it's it's a hard thing to it's a hard thing to try to balance and i don't really know like i'm not in the position of uh telling people how to feel morally uh so it's hard for me to say like what others should feel but um yeah it's a complicated question and i i i loved being a part of the piece um yeah so that's my that's my two cents on it but yeah it was I I'm sh- imagine for you, you got a lot of different responses too. Well, it's interesting because I wonder how, I wonder moving forward, I, I am, you know, 99.9999999 bar nine, sure that he will not be in a part of the Panthers conversation come, come draft day. I, I'm very positive about that based on the ownership and and what's important to Ron Rivera as a head coach, what's important to Dave Gettleman as a GM. I would agree with you as a as a longtime, like I said, 
complicated part of a part of a complicated relationship with the team. <laughs> um, yeah, I agree with you. I, I would doubt it too. Yeah, but I think that I think that I wonder what it will be like for Joe Mixon. He uh, there is going to be a team that takes a chance on him, and I wonder first of all what the PR rollout strategy will be. And I can tell you right now that there will be a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. And it's pretty much a a toss up whether or not the right way actually happens. And second of all, I think it's a lot easier. And speaking from a reporter's perspective, it would be a lot easier to distance yourself from this situation um, if you were a fan. Because if you're a fan of, of football in general, and you don't do this for a living, then it's really easy to just turn off and say, okay, I'm not buying that jersey. I'm not following that player. I'm not paying attention to what this guy does because like I'm a fan of I'm a fan of this team, but I detest what he did and I'm morally against the fact that, you know, first of all, he's not in jail, blah, blah, blah. Kind of one of one of those sides of thought that were really rampant in this whole discussion with Joe Mixon. But if you are a reporter or an analyst or a coach or anywhere involved to which you have to face this ugliness kind of every single day, you have to kind of figure out what your plan is for approaching it. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you guys about it, because obviously the second it happens and the second that you guys are kind of he's on your radar as a prospect, this is something that you have to start thinking about. And you are you are forced to think about it. And and that's not a bad thing, because I feel like everybody should have to dissect these types of issues. I feel like it's good for the human spirit and human psyche. But in terms of of figuring out how to do it and and how to let's say you're a reporter and you're going to be covering Joe Mixon for, you know, the team he's on for the rest of his career with that team. How do you go about even starting to do that? Because, you know, I mean, that's that's just something I'm so curious about is how do you even have that conversation with yourself and ask yourself, how much time and energy am I going to devote to basically staking my territory out in front of this kid's locker and holding him accountable every single second of every single minute of every single day of the rest of his NFL career? Or are you going to kind of decide that yes, I'm going to hold them accountable, but also there is some things that I might miss because I'm doing my job in other places. You see what I'm saying? So it's just it's it's just very complicated. And I'm I'm really curious about how this kind of all plays out. I, I know for a fact which side I which which person I would be if I were if I were um if he were to be brought in, which he won't he won't be, but if he were to be brought into Carolina. But I definitely think that it's going to be really interesting covering the sociological ramifications of having Joe Mixon on a, on an NFL team here coming up soon. And, and it really starts with the evaluation process and kind of gauging how people do go about evaluating him. Well, if you, if you don't mind me asking, and you can feel free to not answer, what, what side would you, would you be on as the reporter in that situation? Well, I think that first and foremost, as a reporter, it's it's not my job to show bias, but it is my job to hold people accountable, especially people in positions of power. That's kind of why journalism exists, as, as we know, and to speak the truth, even when it might not be the popular opinion. So um, I think that I would be I would be a person that is, you know, 
not letting the subject get old or not normalizing the subject of what happened because I, I'm of the opinion, um, that in order to do one's job in covering Joe Mixon, yes, you can talk about, and you should talk about what he's accomplishing in his job, but you also absolutely, it is crucial that you not normalize the situation with him breaking Amelia Molitor's jaw and and not normalize the fact that he was let off with incredibly lenient punishment for such a violent crime and and not normalize the things that that um, kind of people tend to do once someone reaches NFL status. I think that making sure you ask him the tough questions and hold him accountable, make make sure you're talking to the PR people that he is staying at his locker after games because even guys who don't have such a blight on their record are leaving, you know, are leaving the locker room if they don't like how they played. So who's to say that that Joe, you know, will stick around and, and answer tough questions day after day after day? And I think after a certain point, you start to understand how he himself is responding to the quote-unquote adversity of his own situation that he's put himself in. So you you have to kind of be there every single day and you have to watch and you have to ask him questions and you have to hold him accountable for actions and you have to, you know, be super vigilant in your reporting and, and the way that you report in an unbiased manner to start to get a big picture look at how he is going to conduct himself for the rest of his professional life. I love a couple things there. I love one that you you said his victim's names. I think that's his name, her his victim's name. Um, I mentioned when I was talking to you about it that I think sports media in general just handles this very clumsily. Is a nice way of of putting it. Um, these sort of conversations and and also just like you said, never normalizing what happened because it's not normal and it should never be normal. And I think one of the, like like I've indicated to you now and also when we were talking, like I I think it is such a like you said, nuanced and complicated thing that, that is not a, like a binary this or that answer um, in in how we cover these things. And I, but I think one of the best things I I read about this, um, uh, well, especially with Ty, well, more so with Tyree Kill, was Mina Kimes, who's a great writer for ESPN. Oh, I loved, yeah, I loved her story. Yeah, yeah she, that was a great one. And I think the the part that really just stuck with me was you know remembering when uh, Chris Collinsworth talked about Tyree Kill. Like in the middle of a football game where he's, you know, absolutely bawling out, you know, he brought this this story back up about his background with a with a violence incident with a woman, um, and like like she said in the piece, made everybody feel uncomfortable watching it, and that was good. Like we should feel uncomfortable. We should. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. because it's never. It, this was not ever going to be a comfortable situation. It's not, and it shouldn't be, because the second it becomes comfortable, it starts to become okay. Yep, yep, and it becomes there are already not enough consequences, as as we've said with with what happens, and further, you know, like you said, quote unquote, advert, like taking away the quote unquote adversity that they're all, they have to face from it. Um, that should uh, that should not be a part of our our conversation or, or what's what's done. So I, I think that's a great perspective on it. Jordan, you, you've given me a lot of time today, and I just want to, one last question before we wrap up here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I gather from 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 your story and just interacting with you in general, we're we're, we're despite my current baby face status, we're we're near the same age. Um, and like one hundred and three. Oh wow! <laughs> well, 
what do I know? I'm obviously not very perceptive. Um, but you know, we're about the same age. So, you know, we're younger people in the industry. And not only that, like if you've made it an hour into the podcast here so far and you haven't figured out Jordan is a woman. Oh, she she did say that too. So you're clearly not a good listener. Um, re, re, rewind and start again. Um, but you're a younger person in the industry like me. You're also a woman, not like me. Um, and and of course, the, both of those things come with their share of skeptics, you know, whether it's youth and even more so like your gender in, in the industry, like it comes with a little bit of like, yeah, but or whatever, like some criticism or skepticism. What do you say to those people that would question you in your job based on either your age or your gender or both? Well, uh, I got hired for a reason, I guess, <laughs> is, is what I would say to them, but no, I mean, yeah, that's something that's kind of just a daily, a daily occurrence at this point, which I mean, people are entitled to their own opinions. It's, you know, helpful when they're not negative or, or, um, just really horribly abrasive, <laughs> but it's, um, people are, people are definitely entitled to their opinions. And, and honestly, I, I know, I know the level of, studying that I've put in to get here. I know the level of work I've put in to get here. And I know the level of work that I will continue to approach every single day of my life in this profession with, because I feel like I, I owe that to the people that are, are consuming the content that I put out. I, the worst thing that I could ever do is be uninformed about a subject or poorly researched about a subject. And the worst thing I could ever do is think for even one second that I can, slow down in terms of my learning curve. I definitely think that every day that I'm in this profession, I will be continuing to learn. And, and I think that's something that needs to apply to everybody in this profession, not just if you are um, a woman or or young or something. And I think that um, being young in a, in a really rapidly moving media landscape offers its benefits, but it also offers really big, really big um, kind of hills to overcome when you're in the NFL and you're trying to build a source base. And, you know, somebody thinks that you're like there to bring the staff Jimmy John's or something, you know, like it's just, someone thinks that you're there, you're there cause you're like someone's daughter or something like that. And it's just, um, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting dynamic. Um, at the, at the senior bowl, I kept getting mistaken for, um, one of the one of the program's hostesses that were that were in the program, and I got mistaken wow. by by reporters and and journalist and other uh, journalists who were then bless their hearts like mortified when I was like mm, I don't have the answer to that question. I am a reporter. I'm here waiting for a player. I'm not here as a hostess of the program. And um and then you know other players were just like confused. <laughs> So, so that was something where that was kind of a wake up call for me in terms of, I mean, I'm really lucky in Charlotte because I have never been treated as anything less than somebody who knows, who knows what I'm talking about and is here for a reason is here because I'm qualified to be here. So I'm really lucky about that. And, Pen and in uh, Pennsylvania, I was also treated as somebody who people understood right away that I take my job. I don't take myself seriously, but I take my job incredibly seriously. So I think that people people kind of got that impression right away and understood that like I'm studying my butt off trying to make sure that I'm ahead of the ahead of the curve every step of the way. Um, but when you go into like these big national landscapes like the combine or the or senior bowl especially, um, it was just a little bit different. It was a little bit of a wake up call in terms of of getting weird looks or or um, people 
approaching you with um, ill intentions in mind and then that kind of a thing. So um, I definitely think that what I would say to people who question, who uh, don't think that a young, you know, 25 year old woman can be a, um, a strong and confident voice and, and source of information on an NFL beat is like, all right, well, I'm showing up to work tomorrow. So let's see what you think then (laughs) kind of a thing. So it's just kind of, um, it's a, it's just not to be all coach speak here, but we're uh, we're just taking it day by day. I love it. Not only did you hit on another one of the podcast's main mottos, which is take your work seriously, but not not yourself. Shout out to soon to be new dad, Eric Stoner, for the first one to say that on the show and the first one I know that's ever said that. Um, But by the way, wow, Eric Stoner is a father, but that's a whole nother uh, that's a whole nother show for for, a whole nother topic for another show. But Jordan, a great answer there. Great answer in general. Let's see what you think then. I love it. Um, Well, Jordan. This has been fantastic. We've had a great uh, discussion here today, in my uh, expert opinion. Um, I, I just always, right before we get out of here, I give the guest one last shot at the floor before I yank it out from under you, and we <laughs> and we end this thing. So, the floor is yours to say whatever you want before we before we jet. Oh man, that's a that's a, a high bar. Pearl Jam rules. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great one. That's all I got. <laughs> hey, that's that's a perfect way to end it. Well, Jordan, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, you know, we, you've just started to get to know each other on on the internet, you and I. And I can say after this interview, for sure, you are an absolute badass and and one of my <laughs> one of my favorite guests. So, thanks again so much for for joining in on episode forty nine of the Backyard Banter podcast. And for all you listening out there. You know, make sure you're reading Jordan's work in the Charlotte Observer. Make sure you're keeping up with with the voice uh, in in her writing as well. And also, you know, make sure you're continuing to share the show with your friends, your enemies, your family. Uh, steal your friends' phones and uh, leave five star reviews on on iTunes. Steal your friends' phones and uh, subscribe to the show. Just anything you can do to to spread the word about what we're doing here at the Backyard Banter Podcast. That's fantastic. And and you yourself. Uh, thanks again for, for, for tuning in and I hope you learned something today. I know I did. <laughs> <laughs>